You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this sermon by Pastor Terry Riley, titled Seeing What God Wants Me to See, from the series 40 Days in the Word. For more info, visit creekside.org. If you would turn to Genesis chapter 21, I'm going to uh, I'm going to hit about four stories this morning uh, for some principles to cover, and then we'll do that. Have you ever thought I don't get much out of the Bible? I have a hard time understanding it, and it doesn't seem to make sense. If you've ever felt that way, today I want to help give you a little insight into that. I, I do believe the Bible can be a difficult book at points, if you don't understand the principle I'm going to talk about today of illumination, or if you really do just have a tendency to see it as like a textbook or a history book or a theology book where you really don't encounter the living God, Christ Jesus, in it and through it and for the purpose of coming to it. Those all become really important points. I remember, you know, I taught junior high history, so I got to teach world history, U.S. history uh, for a few years before I came here. Interestingly, um, you know, very few people really like history. You know why? Because most history is taught as data, dates, names, and occurrences. Now, that's all part of history, but where it really becomes alive is when you begin to understand the principles behind it. What cause, what's the cause and effect of history in the past? How does it affect our present and our future? And really, that's what we want you to see in the Bible. It's not just a, this past thing, but there's a power to it. Uh, the first week we looked at inspiration, that you know that you can trust God's Word, that it's not simply a human book, but it's the Word of God, God breathed, that He's given to us. And last week we looked at the foundation of what God wants to do with it in your life. And today we're going to look at this thing called illumination, uh, just to pull the blinds back a little bit. Uh, it, it's not unusual for a Saturday evening for Trina and I to be in bed and um, she's watching the squawk box and, um, and I've got my laptop computer there and I'll just kind of be looking at my notes or wordsmithing or kind of going over them and, and doing all of that. That's a pretty good husband, isn't it? Really <laughs> makes you go, wow, what a, what a great guy. Um, a lot of fun. But it, it, it'll go into after a while this discussions about the lights on you know, honey, I'd like to be able to just have the lights off and, you know, you got your computer screen there. And well, that's true. But then I'll say, but you know, where I am now in my life, I really need more light. I need to be able to see better. And because she's so wonderful, she just goes, okay. Because this is what I know. Brightness increases the clarity. And the more clarity I have, the easier it is for me to see and, and to pick up these small words. It's like you, if, if, you take a, if you take a selfie of yourself, I mean, you don't want the bright light on you, do you? Because if you do, it's going to pop. All the blemishes and those protruding pimples or things in your face that you don't want anyone to see. So you don't want the light to be too strong. I mean, let's face it, most of us probably look a little better in the dark, don't we? <laughs> Conversely, the more light that you have, the more clearer things are, and especially true when it comes to God's Word, because it says it's like this mirror, that it, 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 it shines forth and it reflects. And that's important, because the more light you have from God's Word, the more it can illuminate those things in your heart, in your life, and your soul, and the more you'll get out of it. So what is illumination? Well, it, it's really, uh, illumination is bringing spiritual light and letting the Holy Spirit show me the meaning of God's Word and how it applies to my life. So I'm not just reading it without a sense of, okay, God, what are you saying specifically to me through this passage? Now, here's an important point, because the point that you struggle, and that's why we set it up the first week to really say this is God's word breathed to us, that it's inspired by God. Because the point that you have a hard time believing that is you're going to read the Bible and you're going to go, well, you know, if I don't really believe God said that, then I may not like that and I'm not going to do it. And that's where so many people get in their struggle spiritually because they begin to pick and choose and piecemeal together what they want to believe or act on. Because if there's something in here you don't want to act on and you don't believe it's God's word, you've got a pretty good out right there. Well, it's just another human telling me what to do, not God. 
Before Jesus returned to heaven after the resurrection, he spoke to his disciples. And he said, you know what? There's another part of the Godhead. You've heard me talk about Father God, but there's another person that I want you to know about. It's called the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to live with you and he's going to live in you. And one of the ministries of that Holy Spirit, you can read all of this in John 14 through 17. We'll look at some verses from that. But one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bring recollection of the things that I spoke to you. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate and to reveal his word to you, God's word to you. It's like Christmas time with your kids or your grandkids. You ever bought a toy and it says batteries not included? That's really a bummer if you don't see that before Christmas morning and you don't have the batteries. But a a toy with a battery that's not included, it's still a toy, but it doesn't have the full potential because it doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the juice that's needed to really make the toy a fun toy. Well, that's why we need the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Holy Spirit, loved ones, wants to do. He wants to illuminate and bring these truths to our life. A couple of verses that Jesus gave, I believe they're on your notes. John 14, 26, he said this, the counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and he'll remind you of everything I have said to you. What's he going to do? He's going to recall the teachings that you've received, those things that you've read and begin to understand or journal. How does he speak? What are those things that he's going to bring back? It's always going to be the Bible. John 15, 16 says this, the Spirit will take from what is mine, Jesus' words, and make it known to you. That's the illumination of the revelation. See, the God's word is revealed to us. We believe it's God's word, and then he illuminates it. He brings light to our life and how it, what it means. Ephesians 1.17, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says, I'm going to ask the glorious Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ to give you his spirit, and that spirit will make you wise and let you understand what it means to know God. I love that. The Holy Spirit will make you wise and he'll help you to know God better, to hear God, and that's part of the batteries included. What's the point? The Bible, loved ones, it's a supernatural book. As I read it and I come to it and I say, Holy Spirit, what does this mean? It begins to bring light to it. When you ask questions, Lord, what do you want to speak to me today about my life? He will do it because the Holy Spirit whispers thoughts. He gives impressions. He opens my eyes and he begins to illuminate his word to me so that not only can I understand it, but it applies and it makes sense. It becomes not ink on paper, but it becomes revelation and the literal word of God that changes and transforms my life. So how does it work? Well, how does illumination work? Well, uh, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, Paul says, I pray. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's illuminated, light. In order that you may know the hope to which God has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us to believe. So you're going, are you kidding me? My eyes, my my heart has eyes. I mean, it's in my chest. He can't see. You're right. But remember, when you were born, you were physically born, God gives you five senses. Hear, taste, touch, smell, and feel. And you learn life. You experience life through these five senses. But when you're spiritually born, reborn into God's family, this word called save, sozo, where where this wholeness begins to come to your life because now you're personally related to the person of Jesus Christ, you get a second set of spiritual senses. You get spiritual eyes to see. You get spiritual ears to hear. You get this sense of spiritual life to feel. You're going to see things. You're going to hear things. You're going to sense things that you didn't feel before. Have you noticed that since you come to Jesus? There's things that are different in your life now. You see things differently. I've used this term over my whole time here. Your hunter. Did you have a hunter? You ever say, I got a hunch. I got a hunch about this. Well, I call it now, when I got saved, when God brought me into relationship and this thing called salvation, you know what else got saved? My hunter did. So now, when when things come into my life, I go, wow, 
oh, I see that. That's not just this kind of Terry hunch. Now I know that the Holy Spirit is working in me, and there's this spiritual huncher that goes on. And I'm a very intuitive person, and it's interesting. I begin to pick up things. But now it's not just because of my intuition, but it's because of this Holy Spirit that is working in me. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit, remember those things you used to do that you can't do anymore? Remember those things that, that uh, you didn't do, but now you do because you know you're supposed to? I was at the Portland airport uh, a little over a year ago, and uh, you know they have the place where you go, you put your bags through, but they got this section over here, it's just kind of wide open, and it's just wide open. I, was, I started to walk through there, and all of a sudden, there was this big announcement, stop, do not trespass, go back. And I'm looking around, I go, this is really embarrassing, because it's, I mean, it's like going through this whole section of the airport. That's kind of what the Holy Spirit does. Yeah. Have you ever noticed that? The, the, now, you, you, you know, you're, you're moving towards something, you're thinking about doing something or saying something, and all of a sudden, there's this Boop, boop, don't go there. Don't trespass. Turn around. See, that is illumination. That's the Holy Spirit at work in us because now we begin to take in the life of Christ and the Word of God. See, listen, you know this. Most of you know this, but the reality is, is that we live in two different worlds. We have this spiritual, unseen world of God and angels and angelic beings, and it's talked about in Ephesians chapter 6. We live in that world. We just don't necessarily readily see it. We live in this physical world where everything is seen. It's the created, created world. And it's, but the spiritual world was created before the physical world, and it's going to outlast it. One day, everything that is physical has a shelf life, and it's going to end. And sometimes we forget that. You know, we live for that. But God is angels, the spirit that resides in you. Hear me, loved ones. It's going to last forever. The spiritual world is more real than the physical world. We just don't always see it because we need God. And God has to open our eyes and we have to begin to tune that second set of spiritual senses to be able to understand and to see what God's doing around the world. That's why Paul says, I pray, I pray the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so you can begin to see things at a different dimension and at a different level. I mean, have you ever read the Bible and one day you go, whew, wow, that makes sense. It's like it goes, there's a light. Oh, illumination, there's this light that goes on in your mind and you have this spiritual aha moment where you read a story, maybe a verse you've read many times and all of a sudden you go, Whew, that makes sense. Or it's exactly what you needed. It was an encouragement. It was a challenge. It was a directive. Hear me, loved ones, that's illumination. For some of us, maybe that hasn't happened. Or for others, it happens very infrequently. Where you read the Bible and you, know, you, just, you don't ever have those aha moments. Exactly what I need. You don't sense and experience that kind of illumination. But God wants you to experience that. And today I want to look at just, uh, I want to look at four benefits of this thing called spiritual illumination, and then I want to talk about how to de develop it and build it in your life. So the first story is Genesis chapter 21, where we can begin to see, you got a problem? God wants to open your eyes and illuminate your seeing and give you spiritual sight. It's the story of Sarah and Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to promise you a son that's going to come miraculously. And so he's believing for this. Now, years have passed. We come to Genesis chapter 21, and nothing has happened. And, and, and this great nation, this, this son of promise, where is it? Abraham's 90 years of age, no sun, dimming prospects, passing of time. This is a problem. We'll enter his beautiful and lovely wife, Sarah, who says, no problem. I got a plan B. I'm too old to have a baby. You're probably too old to have a baby, so let's do this. I have a handmaiden. Her name is Hagar. Why don't you sleep with her, impregnate her, and let's have a son, and we'll help God with this plan. So Abraham goes, well, honey, that is a sweet idea. And so um, I don't know if he would have said it that way, but he... Um, he did that. And so he does it. And they have this son, and his name is Ishmael. Well, the problem is that was Sarah's plan, not God's. 
So this child is born, and Abraham is so happy thinking that he's the, the promised child. And God, thank you, but God goes, uh-uh. Uh, that's not my plan, and that's not the promise. Now, I love that boy, and that's wonderful, but he's not the one that I promised. So time goes by, and uh, some years go by, and finally, uh, Sarah gets pregnant. It's a miracle. And lo and behold, the story we're coming to today, uh, we're going to see where he's, he's been born. He's probably two to three years old because he's now getting weaned from, from her, from the breastfeeding. And he becomes, uh, Isaac becomes the, the heir uh, and the father of the Jewish nation through Abraham. Now you got to see this because at this time, Ishmael now is probably 15 to 17 years old. And it says that he mocked um, Isaac. And if you've got kids, you know how that can happen. A 15-year-old and a 15 to 17 versus a 2 and a 3-year-old. Sarah sees this and she gets upset with how he treats her son Isaac. And she's probably a little bit concerned because she knows how much Abraham loves Ishmael being the firstborn. And so she says to him, she says, I want you to get rid of them. And God says to Abraham, he says, yeah, go ahead. You need to listen to your wife on this one. So that's where we pick it up today that they're getting ready to leave their house. Genesis chapter 21, verse 8. Now the child grew, speaking of Isaac, and was weaned, and Abraham had a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham. So he says to Abraham, I want you to drive out this slave with your son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. Now this was a very difficult thing for Abraham because of the son, because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not... Be concerned about the boy and your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. But I will also make a great nation of the slave son, because he is also your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, and he took bread and a wineskin. He put them on Hagar's shoulders and sent her and the boy away. She left, and she wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And when, and when the water in the skin was gone... She left the boy under one of the bushes probably to get some shade. Um, so now they're facing probably uh, dehydration and lack of water and probably hungry as well. She went down. She went and sat down nearby about a bow shot, a bow shot away for she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. So as she sat there, it says that she, she sat nearby. She wept loudly. What a... What a picture of rejection. What a pitiful picture of rejection. She just sent away. But God, God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Oh, don't be afraid for God has heard the voice of the boy from the place where he is. I want you to get up. I want you to help the boy and sustain him for I will make him a great nation. God reiterates his promise. Now here, look what happens. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. Did that just appear? No. He says he opened her eyes, and it was illuminated. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew, and he settled in the wilderness. And he became an archer, and he settled in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So what I want you to see is God opens their eyes. They survive. Ishmael becomes the father of all the Arab nations. Here's the point. A lot of times the solution is right in front of us. See, the solution was right in front of her. There was a well of water, but she couldn't see it when until God opened her eyes, illuminated her mind, and gave her a different perspective. Now, some of you, you're presently facing a problem and you're thinking, I see no way around this. There's no answer. I can't see a solution. You know, I feel like I just want to go and kind of be a heap in a corner somewhere. But here's what I want to do. I want to remind you today. I want to invite you to be open to the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christ follower, it's the one that abides and lives in you and is the one that says, I'm going to reveal to you all truth. 
And that you would invite this Holy Spirit to illuminate you and to give you God's perspective. That you would find your solution from God's word. A lot of us, we try and find solutions on our own because we're smart, we're pretty well together, we have a a sense of intellectual acumen. But there are some things that God says, no, no, you're not going to be able to figure this out on your own. And he invites us to say, Lord, would you, would you give me a spiritual eyesight? Give me spiritual illuminated insight into this issue. And I'm convinced loved ones through his word, he'll do that. Second benefit you'll see if you turn to Numbers chapters 22, a couple chapters over. Not only will he give you a solution to your problem, but he'll begin to, he'll begin to see the barriers to your progress. Begin to see barriers to your progress. A lot of people have a lot of things they want to do. We feel like the Lord's called us to do something. Maybe it's start a business. Uh, Maybe it's to develop a ministry, work with something, our family, to get out of debt. We have a goal. We've got a dream. But I don't get it. I'm trying. I'm trying to do everything I know to do, but I'm not making any progress. maybe, Maybe your eyes, heart, spirit needs to be illuminated, needs to be opened. There's a great example of this in Numbers chapter 22, where there's this prophet of God, his name is Balaam. It says about Balaam that whoever he blessed, they were blessed, and whoever he cursed, they were cursed. He was a prophet for God, a prophet of God. Interestingly enough, he did not live with God's people, but he had this blessing on him. And so there's this king of the Moabs, his name is Barak, and he and he, and he calls him and he says, I want, I want you to come and I want you to, to, to prophesy for us because I know that you bless, you bless, you curse, you curse. And Balaam kind of says no and says no, but he really wants to. He's kind of like the preacher that, uh, you know, he goes to his wife. He goes, listen, honey, we just got this invitation to go to a bigger church, a bigger money, a lot more money, a bigger city, better people. And he says, you know what? I got to go up and I got to pray about it. And she goes, well, let me come up and pray with you. He goes, no, 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 you just stay here and pack. And um, that's Balaam, that he really is kind of in it for profit. I mean, you know, you get to that place where you think uh, that's, that's what he's doing it for, and that was really him. So, so Balaam, God says, okay, if you're going to do this, then okay, I can't stop you. But we're going to see where God gets pretty ticked at him. So Balaam starts on his journey to help these bad guys, uh, these Moabites, and God puts this angel in their pathway, and he blocks their progress, and they can't see it. It's a really kind of funny but interesting story. So let's pick it up in 22, verse 22, Numbers 22. But God was incensed that Balaam was going, and the angel of the Lord took a stand on the path to oppose. And the angel of the Lord, we believe, is probably what we call a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate Um, manifestation of Jesus Christ before Bethlehem, understanding Jesus is eternal. He's always been. He'll always, always will be. It just so happens that he came to born in a baby. But we believe this is a Christophany, uh, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. So the angel to oppose him. Now Balaam's riding his donkey and his two servants were with him. Now when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a sword drawn in his hand, she turned off the path and went into the field. A fairly smart donkey, wouldn't you say? So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards and there was a stone wall on, the, uh, on, on either side. So there's this narrow op- uh, opening. It says, the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched down under Balaam. So she says, you know something, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm just going to go down. And what happened? She became furious. He became, uh, so Balaam became furious and beat the donkey with his stick. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. And she asked Balaam, what have I done to you that you've beaten me these three times? Now, that's a really interesting thing, a donkey talking, isn't it? Now, that'll kind of press you if you don't believe that this is the word of God. But what's more interesting to me is Balaam answered. (laughs) The donkey, you made me look like a fool. Can you imagine the guy talking? Well, I guess we talk to our animals. But uh, if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. Well, the donkey replies back, 
I'm not the, listen, am I not the donkey you've ridden all your life until today? Have I never treated you, have I ever treated you this way before? And Balaam goes, well, no, you've been pretty good. Now notice what happens. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand. And Balaam knelt down and bowed with his face to the ground. What does he do? Once he gets this revelation, this revealing, and this illumination, it leads him to simply worship God. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Here's a simple point that I want you to to see here. This is a very interesting story. There's a lot of things in it, but one key principle. You got plans in your life and they're not working out. Try and go this way. Try and go that way. This way's blocked and that way's blocked. You know what can happen? You can get mad at everybody. You can beat your donkey. You can take it out on your kids. You can take it out on your coworkers. You can talk about your boss behind his back. And on it goes. You're mad at everybody. But you can't see the real problem. See, God's trying to keep Balaam from making a serious mistake. And a lot of times when our paths are blocked, he tries to keep us from making those same kinds of serious mistakes. But God also is going to say something like this. Well, if you're bound and determined to go your own way, well, by all means, have at it. And then you get to, we get to pay the consequences. And how often, how often have we done that? So we really have two choices when our, our way gets blocked. The first choice is we can beat our donkey and everybody around us. Or we can say, Lord, open my eyes. Let me see the real issue. Instead of getting mad and blaming everybody around me for my problems, I want to see the real issue. And then when God opens our eyes, I can begin to not only see the problem, because you really can't find the solution until you see the issue. And that's what God does here. That's what he wants to do in each one of our lives where we just simply, again, we invite, Lord, would you open my eyesight? And isn't it interesting, and I've had a couple of these aha moments in in recent months where I go, oh, wow, now I see the problem. I see the issue. And a lot of times it's systemic to who I am and what I've done or haven't done. That's what the Lord always wants to do, loved ones, for each one of us. So not only do I get to see the things that block my paths, but I want to see the defense for what's attacking me because there's times, if you turn over to 2 Kings chapter 6, what you'll find is, you know what, there's times in our lives where we get attacked. Some of you today, you may say, wow, that sounds like me right now, man, I'm just being attacked. Because we all come under attack at certain times. It might be the economy, it might be, it might be a friend, it might be a family member, it might be fears in your mind that you just feel like, I can't, I can't shake this stuff. I'm not sure what God's up to. I don't even know if he's around. Second Kings chapter 6 is the story of Elisha. And he's dealing with this group of people called the Arameans. In the Old Testament, there was a nation that was called Aram. And they were always at war with Israel. Now, there's an interesting backlog to this that every time they'd attack Israel, God would tell in advance the prophet Elisha. And he would say, this is what they're going to do. And then Elisha would go to the king of Israel and tell them. And so they were winning battles left and right. The king gets really frustrated. And so he's uh, fed up and he thinks there's a traitor. So let's pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 11. It says, now the king of Aram was enraged because of this matter. And he called his servants and he demanded of them, tell me which one of us is for the king of Israel. Who's trading? Who's leaking these secrets? Well, one of the servants said, no one, my king. It's Elisha, the prophet of Israel. He tells the king of Israel even the words you speak in your bedroom. So the king said, well, go and see where he is so that I can send men to capture him. Well, when he was told that Elisha is in Dothan, get this, he sent horses, chariots, a massive army, and they went by night and they surrounded the city of Dothan. One man. I guess if someone's reading your mail, you might think they could probably be much greater. But when the servant of the man of God got up early and he went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he says to Elisha, oh, my master, what are we going to do? We're toast. It's you, it's me, it's us. 
against that. And Elisha says, don't be afraid. For those who were with you or with us outnumber those who were with them. Are you kidding me? This is a massive army. It's you and me, dude. But notice the next verse. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And he looked and he saw the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And you get to begin to see that there's this spiritual uh, uh, emissary of forces that are there to protect them. See, he couldn't see it from the physical standpoint. And he's wondering what's going to happen. But as soon as he gets prayed for, as soon as his eyes are open, as soon as there's a limit, uh, illumination, he gets to see the supernatural forces that are there to protect him. And hear me, loved ones, and you really begin to see what God's doing in and around you. And you can't always figure it out, but you begin to see the spiritual forces involved. Guess what? You will lose your fear because you know God's near. You know God is around and you don't have to be fearful. Here's the rest of the story. It says, so when the, uh, verse 18, when the Arameans came against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, please strike this nation with blindness. So God struck them with blindness according to Elisha's word and prayer. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will take you to the man that you were looking for. So here comes these people. They're blind now and, uh, and, and this is the guy they're looking for, but they don't know it's him. So he says, follow me and I'll take you. So what he does is he ends up taking them to Samaria. Samaria. He led them to Samaria, verse 26, and they entered Samaria. Elisha said, Lord, open this, these men's eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they discovered they were in Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, should I kill them? I'll kill them. <laughs> Elisha says, don't kill them. Do you kill those who you have captured with your sword or your bow? Set food and water in front of them so they can eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master and the Aramean raiders did not come into Israel's land again, I guess. What's the simple principle today that when, you know what, when we get illumination, we'll see things from God's perspective and we'll begin to respond God's way. See, the easiest way to derail any enemy and leading to, that has been leading to long-standing battles is simply to turn them into a friend. Uh, as Abraham Lincoln said, I keep my friends close, my enemies closer. Some of you got things attacking you today. They're causing some panic. You feel overwhelmed. Again, we need to invite God to open our eyes and to see all the resources that are at our side, that God's forces that he has commanded to protect us. And instead of taking up our own battle lines, we make sure that we allow God to do the battle and the fight for us, take care of us, trust him, because we see what he's doing out there. The fourth story is in Luke chapter 24. I need to move through it fairly quickly. I, talked, I, I taught on this a couple, few weeks ago, so I'm just going to kind of walk you through it real quick. This is the story of the two disciples that are on the road to Emmaus and they're heading out of town. The first Easter Sunday has taken place. Jesus rose from the dead. Remember, in the 72 hours, there's been this explosion of activity. A lot has happened. Jesus is arrested. He's whipped. He's put before uh, kind of a kangaroo court. Then he's crucified. He's buried in a tomb. The disciples, they're crushed because their, their dreams are buried with Jesus. They thought, this is the Messiah. What happened? Where did he go? They killed him. We're next on the hit list. And all of these things are flooding through them. They're confused and they're in deep grief and, and wondering what's going on. And then we know that that morning, some of the ladies went to the, they went to the, tomb, and they go there, and there's an angel there, and says, why are you looking for the dead among the living? He is risen. And these gals, are go, oh, man, <laughs> cool, can't really believe it. So they go back, and, and they tell the other disciples who run, and they come, and they say, yeah, there's no body there, but it's really hard to believe. 
So what do we see if you read 1 Corinthians 15? For the next 40 days, there's these rumors that go around that Jesus has risen. And so for the next, it begins to build. And for the next 40 days, what we see is, is all of these appearances of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, we see where Jesus appears to the 500, to this group, to that group, the disciples on numerous occasions. And because he, there are so many eyewitness accounts that they believe within a few years, there were 100,000 Christians in Jerusalem because of the simple revelation and revealing in sight of Jesus during that 40 days. But back to Easter Sunday. These two disciples, Cleopas and the other one is unnamed, they're leaving town. Why? Because they're distraught and they're discouraged and they're wondering what happened to the Messiah. And they're walking down this nine-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, they're walking, and there's a stranger that comes up to them. They've been debating, and they've been talking about what's going on and what happened, probably their disappointments and all of this. And this person comes up to him who we know is Jesus, and he says, what's going on? What are you debating about? He knew. But they said, haven't you heard? Are you just a guest today? I mean, you, you, you don't know what's been going on these last few days and heard about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so he goes, no, tell me what's going on. So they begin to walk this nine miles together. And it says at one point that Jesus begins to speak to them. And he says, oh, man, you're, you're just kind of thick. Let me explain it to you. And so he says he begins to teach them from the law of Moses and from the prophets. What's the law of Moses? It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And then he begins to speak to them from the, uh, from the prophets, which would have been everything from Joshua to Malachi. And what does he do? He unpacks what Jesus did as the Messiah and the resurrection to help them understand your hope is not lost. And then it says in this powerful scripture in verse 31, it says, they're walking along. They didn't recognize him. And, it's, and all of a sudden, he, Jesus said, they're, gonna, they're turning in, they're going to go spend the, the, the night somewhere, and it says that Jesus was going to keep going, but they invited him to come. Jesus sits down and he breaks bread with them, and it says in verse 31, then their eyes were opened, illuminated, and they recognized him. I don't know where you've been this last year, but probably some of us. You know, we forget that Jesus is throughout the Bible. A lot of people think that the Old Testament's about Israel and the New Testament about Jesus, but it's not. Jesus is in this thing from cover to cover to cover. And it simply says that there come this point where the revelation comes, this illumination, that their eyes were open and they begin to recognize him. This last year, this last season, it's possible that maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've lost your health. Maybe it's a job, maybe an important relationship, and there's grief and there's grieving in your life. And in the midst of this great pain and tears, it's easy for you to kind of lost sight that Jesus has been walking with you. And you've missed the fact and the reality that he's with you. But never forget what Hebrews says. This is the word of God that says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Oh, I'm with you until the end of the age or to the end of your life. That Jesus is with you every step of the way. But for some of us, maybe our, blind, our eyes, they're, they're not seeing. They haven't been illuminated. And so we're wondering. We can't see it. Without illumination, it's hard to see life in this book from a God perspective that makes sense. But when God opens our eyes, we get to see the solution to our problems, the barriers to our progress, the protection that he brings to our life, and ultimately that he's with us in the deepest pain and hurts that we experience. So how do I grow in this thing called illumination? I want to quickly give you five things. And the first thing is very obvious, but it's the starting point you've got to begin with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Without this, you're spiritually blind. You can't see things from God's perspective. See, loved ones, we talk about this a lot. It's not about a religion. It's not about knowing about Jesus Christ or God. It's about a relationship with him where we engage him at a personal relational level. And we begin to accept and to understand that his salvation, that the wholeness that he brings to his life comes through his death and his resurrection for you, for me 
for the world. And until you begin and enter into that relationship, you can only see life from a human viewpoint, from a human perspective. Spiritual life and things, they really don't make sense. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For their foolishness to him. And if he doesn't know God, he can't understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. That's why you can have people come to church on a Sunday morning or listen to whatever, and they can't respond because they are not spiritual. They have not come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is why it's silly even for the church to expect people who are far from God to come in and to live and to believe like we do until they cross the line to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. You can make all the laws in the world, but it's not going to change your heart. It starts with the person of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, the devil who rules this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. They cannot see the light of the good news. You can't see it, loved ones, until there's this revelation of God and then this illumination of the Spirit that says this is truth. And then that person, you and I, we've crossed the line. The blinders come off. That's why Jesus said in John 3.3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God until he's born again, born from above. And then I got to ask God in faith to open my eyes. The verse that we memorized last week was Psalm 119.18 that says, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things of your law. Why do we memorize that one? Well, because here's the deal. Imagine if every day you just go to the Bible before you start your quiet time, your devotion, whatever you call it, and you say, God, today... On the basis of your word, I simply I want to open my eyes. I want to see wonderful things from your law. I want to see it. I want to hear it. I want you to give it to me. We need to come to the word, loved ones. That's why we're doing this, this series, because we want to grow in our ability. If, if you're memorizing scripture and you're just trying to memorize it in your mind, it's going to be really hard. That's why you want to say it out loud. You want to recite it out loud so you're, not only are you saying it, but your ears can hear it, your eyes can see it. Whether you're driving or shaving or showering or whatever you're doing, you want to get this word in your heart. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be, that's a promise, be given to you. And when he asks, he must believe. So i got to ask God in faith. And I believe that you can get the answer to so many things you face if you'll come to God's word and you'll go, God, show me the wonderful things of your law you got to come with a humble attitude as well. I come to the Word. If I come to the Word of God and I said, I got this. I know what I'm going to do. If I got it all figured out, I don't need God's help in this marriage issue. I don't need God's help in this financial piece, in this relational issue. Your human reasoning alone, if that's what we depend on, friends, it will keep you from being able to be illuminated and to see God's work in your life if you don't have a humble attitude and say, God, what I really need is you. Psalm 29, 25 verse 9 says this, He guides the humble in what is right and He teaches them His way. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord, not myself, not yourself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. Well, I think this, I think this, I think this. And God never calls us to mail off our brains in some kind of brown bag and send it off. But in the midst of our reasoning and our thinking, we want it to be saturated and marinated in the word and the love of God because that's the perspective that we want. And then he says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Your finances, your career, your family, your sexuality, every way. Acknowledge him. Why? Because then he'll make your path straight. He'll give you the right direction every time. Because he will illuminate his word to your mind and your heart and your soul. And then we've got to cleanse our hearts of sin and conflict. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You don't see God if there isn't a purity of heart. Now hear me, because that's a scary thing. Um, 
what do we mean? Well, purity of heart doesn't mean perfect. If God only illuminated the minds and the hearts of people that were perfect, nothing would ever happen because none are perfect. Uh, Romans 3.11 says, there's none who is righteous. No, not one. There's none who is perfect. No, not one. Listen, loved ones, we're all level at the cross, but pure in heart means there's nothing between you and God. I confess, I don't allow the junk of my life and the garbage to get cluttered and layered on my heart and pile up. Probably a lot of us have seen what happens when that does. I, when I was in college, one of, the, one of the summer jobs I had was we'd go in and clean out houses after people moved out, rentals. There was one that was really new in a neighborhood in Springfield, and from the outside, man, it looked really nice. It was probably only about a year old. We walked in. We literally had to put on these gas masks because there was garbage and debris and food, plates of food and baby diapers and animal feces and, I mean, junk and debris. We literally had to get shovels out and, and build a, and, and make a path, shovel a path to the garage. And then we had those big silver, you know, I don't know what you call them, like charcoal shovels and and literally, we just started getting wheelbarrows in there and throwing it into the garage. By the time we were done, we were knee-deep in garage, uh, knee-deep in garbage in this whole garage. You know, that can happen in our life where everything looks good on the exterior. But then we got all this stuff layered on the inside. It needs to be taken out. See, you really can't hear God if you've got all that stuff, if you've got lust and bitterness and resentment and guilt and anger and rage and jealousy and envy and backbiting and all those things going on. We've got to have a clear conscience, a cleansed heart, and then be free of conflict to really begin to get the experience, this illumination. 1 John 2.11 says this, that whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and he walks around in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going. Some of you may not know where you're going in this room because you got unresolved conflict in this room. you got a bunch of people you're just ticked at, you don't like, or you hate, or you're bad-mouthing. He doesn't want that to happen. Why? Because darkness blinds, and he says you can't find your way. That means if you're out of whack relationally with somebody, guess what? You're going to sit down and say, oh, God, speak to me. You know what he's probably going to say? The first thing he's going to say, would you go take care of that relationship first? And then we'll talk about what's next. Since December, I've been working on a biblical step. I call it, the, uh, the, there's a fourth step about doing a ruthless moral inventory. I'm doing this biblical step that's called, I'm doing a ruthless relational inventory to make sure things are right with a lot of relationships in my life, past and present, to the best of my ability wherever there's a relationship that I'm thinking I need to do something with. I am writing letters. I'm calling. I woke up. Uh, it was a few weeks ago. woke up early in the morning, and I was praying. And this person's uh, name came to my mind. And, and I know I really hadn't done anything wrong from my perspective. But the Lord said, you're going to contact them. Take care of it. Interestingly, that morning, I got an email from this person asking, requesting something. So, uh, I said, sure, I'd be glad to do that for you, friend. And I said, by the way, um, the Lord just brought your name to me this morning. I'm doing this ruthless relational inventory, and your name came up this morning. And so I said, based on our past, and this, is there anything that I need to take care of? And, uh, and, and we began to just uh, send back and forth about three or four emails but why is that? Because I know relationships affect people. I know relationships deeply affect me. And here's what I know. I don't want to get stuck in the dark. The Bible says if you got something wrong with a brother, when you come to church and you bring an offering, you go and make it right with that person. Then you come back and you finish your worship. I'll guarantee you there's probably people in this room this morning. you got issues with people that you know are unresolved and taken, not taken care of, and worship's really difficult for you. You just come to church and you just sit here and go, oh, um, yada, 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 yada. And it's because there are conflicts in your life that you're unwilling to do what God says. For some, you might need to make a phone call today, maybe write a letter, determined to forgive someone 
Or maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to let somebody off the hook. Let it go. Until you do, you know what? It's going to be hard to have spiritually illuminated eyes. And here's what we got to do. We got to commit it in advance to do what God says. This is just simply unqualified obedience. God, I'm sitting down here and I need you to teach me what I need to do with my kids, my spouse, my family, my relationships, my money, my business, my ministry. And I'm telling you in advance, I'll do whatever you say. That's how we have to approach the word. It's like the black preacher. Comes on a Sunday morning, he stands before his people and he just starts saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And as only a black preacher could do, he just keeps that mantra going and pretty soon the people stand and there's this people are saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And it builds to a crescendo and they're just screaming it, yes, Lord. And finally the preacher stops and he looks at him and he says, now that the Lord has heard our heart, let's ask him what he wants. I want to live that way. I want to live that way. I want to go, yes, Lord. Psalm 119, 33 and 34, teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them. A promise and a commitment to the living God. Every day, man, I'm going to give you my best. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to really listen to your word and so deceive myself. I'm going to do what it says. 